All righty, this morning we're going to try to uh, finish up lesson number seven in your lesson guide and, and uh, cover lesson number eight as well. Eight is a fairly short lesson, relatively speaking. So we're going to have to uh, move along fairly quickly. Lord willing, we've got two more Sundays in this month, in this quarter. Next week, we're going to try to cover uh, lessons nine and ten, and then the last Sunday of the quarter, lessons 11 and 12. So uh, we'll have to uh, pick up the pace a little bit. But as always, if, if I skip over something that you feel is uh, important and needs to be discussed, raise your hand and we'll, we'll take the time to do that. Lesson number seven, uh, where does most of that take place? Lesson number seven. Jesus is with, his, with the 12 and where is he? In the upper room, right? He's in the upper room there in Jerusalem with the 12. And so while there, he has uh, uh, initiated or established, if you will, the, what we call the Lord's Supper. He has uh, once again taught the lesson of being a humble servant. Uh, how, how did he teach that by example in the upper room? Washed the apostles' feet. Here it is. The Christ, the Son of God came to this earth and he got down in the floor with a towel and, and washed his disciples' feet. Example for us. If, if the Son of God would do that, then certainly we who are made of the dust of the earth ought to be willing to humble ourselves and be a servant. And, and, and that's the lesson, not necessarily just washing feet, but being a humble servant is, is the lesson there in, in whatever way that we can. You will turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Jesus also has been predicting the disciples that they would betray him and leave him and various things like that while he's in that upper room. And uh, he foretells uh, Peter's denials as well. But in Luke chapter 22, beginning verse 35, there's kind of a, I don't know, a curious little conversation here. It seems... Uh, begin verse 35 he says <clears throat> and he said to them that is Jesus speaking uh, when I sent when I sent you out before with uh, without money belt and bag and sandals you did not lack anything did you you remember that was back in Matthew chapter 10 where it was recorded or Mark chapter 6 they were to go out and preach they sent out the 12 he says don't take any money with you don't take any extra clothes don't take any foods you go out and preach, and when somebody invites you into their house, you just uh, accept their uh, hospitality, and uh, you eat whatever they set before you, and your needs are going to be provided. So he says, now, when I sent you out like that without any provisions, uh, did you lack anything? And they said, no, no, we didn't. Everything was, that we needed was supplied. If I can uh, advance this thing. We're on lesson seven here. Um, so no, our list, everything was supplied. But look at verse 36. He said, but he said to them, but now, it's going to be different now. Whoever has a money belt uh, is to take it, take it along, likewise also a bag, and I assume that would be to take food or uh, clothing or whatever that you might need. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. 
So now before you weren't to take anything with you and now you take all of these things and in addition to money and food and clothing, you need to take a sword with you. Verse 37, for I tell you uh, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here we have two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So what is this? Is Jesus literally telling them that every one of you need to sell your coat and buy a sword? And now when you go out and preach the gospel from here on, you do it at the point of the sword. Is that, is that the message? What, 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 what is the message? Self-protection. Self-protection? You're going to be scattered? I, I think if... if uh, you can remember back in Matthew 24 what he told was going to happen to them before the destruction of Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. They're going to persecute you. You're going to be hated by all men everywhere you go. And we saw that, uh, what was it, in Acts chapter 28 when Paul was in prison, the Jews came and said, you know, I know this way, this faith is evil spoken of by every nation. So we, we know, reading the book of Acts and other passages, that that literally it happened, and it seems to me, all he's saying here is, is that you were you were accepted before, but it's not going to be that way now. You're going to be persecuted from this point on, and you and you need to be prepared for that. He said that he himself, remember, he was crucified between two thieves, so he was treated just like a common criminal, and what he's saying to them is is you're going to be treated that way too. And you just need to recognize that and you be prepared to accept that kind of, of behavior. Yes, Brother Al. I think just as he, you know, he references earlier when I told you to go with nothing and I said, you'd be fine, were you fine? And they were, yeah, it was fine. And so here, I think saying that now it is not going to be fine, but that doesn't mean something bad or against the plan has happened. He's letting them know, as, as he often said about the Son of Man, all these terrible things are going to happen, but it's not because something's gone wrong or it's not because I've lost. It's not because I've lost control. It's because Scripture must be fulfilled. It's always had to happen this way. And so I think that probably would give them comfort as well when it, when it does get hard that he said this would happen. He's still in control. There's, we don't have to worry, where, was he wrong or are we wrong? There's comfort in that, I think. Good point. Good point. And uh, and he didn't say don't go because it's going to be difficult. You know, they're going to persecute. No, you go anyway, right? You're going to be in that. And that's they they treated me like a criminal. And so if you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they're going they're going to treat you. To, so just be prepared for it. Uh, it might might keep in the back of your memory too. We'll see a little more about this a little bit later. But maybe a little bit, little bit surprising among uh, the 11. Remember, Judas has already left, right? Judas is gone. So he's there with the 11 now. And two of them actually did have swords. Curious there. Okay. Don't know why, but they, they, they had swords themselves. So, all righty. Uh, Go to John chapter 14. Turn to John chapter 14. The heading there is Jesus comforts his disciples. 
why, why would his disciples need comforting at this point anyway? What, what had he just been telling them? I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to be leaving you. You know, he was their, their mentor, their teacher, their leader, and he says, I'm, I'm leaving you. And, and where I'm going, you can't come. And I'm going to be killed. And you are going to deny me. And you can just imagine at this point now how that could be weighing them. Wait a minute, they, they depended everything on the Lord. And I think it seemed like they recognized how much they had to learn. They hadn't learned nearly all. They, they, their faith wasn't what it needed to be yet. And he's going to leave me. And so you can, you can see how that, that would be difficult for them. And so he says, uh, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. But not, were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll return again and receive you unto myself. That where I am there, you may be also. So is that a contradiction? He had told them before, I'm going and you can't go. And now he's saying, I'm going and I'm going to come again so that I can bring you back home with me. So is there a contradiction there? It's just the time variant. It's, it's the timing, isn't it? So he's going to be crucified. He's going to die. And they can't go with him there. And But at the end of time, then he will come back and receive his own to himself. And so he's, he's comforting them with these words. You know, uh, I'm going to leave you and you can't come now. But the time is going to come that I'll come back for you. And so that would be, so is that comforting to us as well? I would say that those words of comfort recorded and preserved were for, for us as well. We can take the same comfort really in the same words. Um, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Really, there's a very similar statement there. You remember in Thessalonica, some had been teaching that the resurrection has already passed, and so those of your number that have died, well, they're just they're going to they're going to miss everything. So it's a real problem. But in First Thessalonians chapter four, I'm just going to start reading in verse 16. It says, "For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Is that what he was telling his apostles there on that day? In the upper room, same, same thing, was it? And he, in verse 18 of, of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Roger, that's pretty comforting in it to us. Doesn't matter. You see, uh, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be treated like a criminal. All these terrible things. People are going to hate you. But I'm coming again. I'm going to receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Hebrews 10, 23 says, 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So it doesn't matter what happens to you in this lifetime, what difficulties you may encounter, but God has promised. You have hope in Jesus Christ, and he has promised, and he always keeps his promises. So you could probably think of dozens of passages on this subject that uh, while Jesus was comforting his disciples in the moment, it's also comforting to us as well. Uh, people can take away your possessions. They could take away uh, your freedom, could be put in jail. They could even take your life, but what can they not take? Your reward. Right, Leland? Can't take your reward. Take everything else, maybe. They can't take your reward. So, comforting words to his apostles. You have the comments there. Um, just an alternative perspective on this passage, uh, and that would be that it's not really referring to heaven, to the end of time. Because you have to think about it. These apostles, he's struggling to even get them to understand that he's going to be crucified and raised from the dead. If you go back to Luke 18, verse 33, he keeps trying to tell them, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise on the third day. That seems what this passage is all about. It's that another reference to getting his apostles to understand that he will be crucified but he's going to rise again. And through his resurrection, his disciples will have a relationship with him. Um, and so to me, that's what verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, it's not necessarily referring to the end of time, but the establishment of the church uh, through his resurrection, that his apostles will have this relationship with him. That's the comfort. And it is certainly true a little bit later. He will definitely talk about, I'm going away now, but I'm coming back to see you. You, know, you can't come then. You will see me later. So he definitely will refer to his death and the resurrection and time they'll be with your, your grief will be turned to joy and those kinds of things. Uh, in, in my mind, I've always uh, kind of associated this with the end of time because he talks about the mansions and that kind of thing. But certainly it could apply like you're, you're saying too. I wouldn't wouldn't argue with that at all. Certainly to reply in that sense that he would come again to them after his resurrection. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, verse 6. We're going to have to just pick out a few verses here and go with it to get through this. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes of the Father but by me. So I kind of condensed that, that verse and it just says, I am the way to the Father. I am the way to the Father. What is it that separates us from the Father? Sin. How is that sin removed so that we can be reconciled? It's through Jesus Christ. And, uh, of course, it's his death, burial, and resurrection. He paid the price shedding the innocent blood that is able to take away sins. And it's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, that we can be reconciled. So Jesus uh, is the way back to the Father. Uh, verse 
11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Uh, you, back in uh, John chapter 5, I believe it was, there was all the uh, testimony of who Jesus was. He says there was four, four who testified. The first one was John the Baptist. Remember he said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. You remember what the second one who would be the testifying that Jesus was the Son of God as he claimed to be? Remember the second witness, what it was? It was the works, the works that I have done. You know, who, who else can raise, the, you know, claim to be the Son of God and then raise the dead? It would be completely inconsistent if God would be with somebody who, and, and allow them to raise the dead, to heal the sick and foretell the future and all these other things, and that person be a liar. That, that would be completely inconsistent with it. So you know that Jesus is not lying about who he is because the Father is with him and shows that through the works that he had done. And of course, the Father himself, what did he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased to hear ye him. And of course, the fourth witness was with the scriptures. Remember all of that. So, uh, so believe me that I am the Christ, the Son of God, because of the works. If, if you don't just take my word for it, look at the works that I have done. That should be ample evidence. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, remember, this is one of the last times he gets to talk with his apostles, and so he's talking about some important things. And he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's verse 15. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. Verse 23, and Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my word. Verse 31. And so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. See, again, Jesus never tells us to do what he's unwilling to do, right? He says, the world knows that I love the Father. How? Because I keep all of his commandments. And the world's going to know that you love me if you keep my commandments. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So he's just telling them, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be killed, people are going to hate you, and you better be ready to be rejected when you go to preach the gospel, so be ready for it. And then he turns around and says, I give you peace. How do you rec reconcile that? I would say, because he says, I will come again and receive you unto myself. There's going to be a time, and the peace comes in the salvation that he provides it. Carrie was talking about just a few minutes ago, uh, and the salvation provided by the shedding of his innocent blood. So, yes, a lot of bad things can happen to you, but nobody can take your reward away, and so you have peace. What is it, Philippians 
4 and verse 7 talks about the peace that passes understanding. You remember in 2 Timothy 4, Paul said he was in prison about to die. But he said, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Fought a good fight, kept the faith, finished the course, and therefore there's a crown of life uh, waiting for me. So there's the peace that nobody can take away from you. Verse 29, now I have told you before it happens. So again, he's building more evidence for faith. So when he's gone, there will be plenty of evidence that these apostles and us today can build our faith upon. Anything down through John 14, 31? Yes, Brother Sam. He also uh, promises here the Comforter, which yeah. was going to be a tremendous uh, comfort and peace and would be unmistakable. And in the next two chapters, he'll reiterate that. So basically three times he tells them, and uh, I think we'll, we'll be able to see as we get through uh, the, the book of Acts exactly how much peace they got, not only from being reminded of Jesus' words, uh, getting revelation, but uh, just knowing that uh, everything that Jesus told them was coming about, as he said. Right. And later he's going to say, it. I think you just referred to it, it's to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send the helper. And, of course, the helper's going to do that. I was just looking. I'd skipped over verse 26 there. Uh, he's going to bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So they're not going to have to say, boy, what was it Jesus taught me? I can't remember. Holy Spirit's going to make sure they remember, right? So it's going to be to their, their advantage. Anything, anything else there? Matthew and Mark says at that time they, uh, they sang a hymn and went out to the... Uh, through the Mount of Olives. And uh, John's uh, gospel just says, he's, he said, let's get up and go from here. So remember Luke has said that was his habit of this week. In the, in the evenings, he would go spend the evenings in the Mount of Olives. Um, Jesus' farewell discourse. I'm going to take this kind of in chunks of verses. About the first eight verses, he's talking about the vine and the branches. And we know the concept if you have a tree or some kind of a vine and it has branches coming off of the main trunk. Uh, where does the branch get its nourishment? From the vine, right? What happens if you cut off the branch? It's going to die. What happens if you have uh, some kind of a vine that's supposed to produce fruit and you got you've got branches that don't do anything. They're just bare. Then you can prune those off, right? And the others can produce even more. And he's kind of talking about that uh, in a way of, of, of his disciples and him. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, some have tried to teach that what he's saying here is that Jesus is the vine and the various denominations around the world are the branches, but that doesn't uh, fit with the context. In, in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, and you, speaking of to his apostles, you are the, are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. 
Uh, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And of course, we know that's what happens is we could be a faithful child of God and fall away and we just kind of dry up spiritually, right? Uh, our life is found in the vine and you separate from the vine and, uh, and you die. So to abide in the vine, the first John 1 and verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. Where does the light come from? Verses before that says God is light, right? And in him there's no darkness at all. So if we, if we walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and, and his blood cleanses us from every sin. Verses 13, 14, and 15, he talks about friends. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And he says, you are my friends if, there's a condition in it, if you do what I command you. He says, no longer do I call you slaves, for slaves do not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. So the implication there is, I'm laying down my life for my friends, is what he's telling them. It's kind of interesting, we're going to see here shortly, that when Jesus betrayed him, what did Jesus call Judas? His friend. Do you ever notice that? I never noticed that before. We'll see that in a little bit. Um, verse 18, 19, and 20. If the world hates you, don't be surprised. Why? Hated me first, he said. Don't be surprised. Um, verse 20. Uh, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. But listen, if they keep, kept my word, they will keep your words also. So we see beginning in Acts chapter 2, that very thing happened when they pe preached the gospel. And in and Acts chapter 2 and verse 30, or 42 tells us, that they continued in the apostles' doctrine and teaching, right? So they're going to be, you're going to be rejected. You're going to be persecuted just like they did me, but there will be some that will listen. They have listened to me. There will be some that will listen to you as well. Verses 22 through 25, he talks about those who have no excuse. He said, uh, if I had not come and spoke to them, they would not have an excuse, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So again, Jesus had left ample evidence that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And if you've rejected that evidence and rejected him as the Christ, you, there's really no excuse. You can't stand in judgment and, 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 and bring up some excuse. And God said, oh, I didn't think about that. You know, you're right. Uh, so, you, you know, it's okay that you didn't believe because of what, you can't say that. There, there is no excuse. He's given us everything that we need to know. He's taught us what we need to know. He's given us every bit and even more evidence than we would even need to, to believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. In verse 25, they've hated me without a cause. talked about the spirit of truth verse 26 will testify of me and so will you and of course we see the rest read the rest of the new testament in the book of acts about the apostles and other evangelists uh, testifying of jesus and of course the holy spirit gave them abilities 
again uh, to uh, perform miracles to, to prove that they were speaking the truth from the Lord. John chapter 16. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. So none of this is going to be a surprise to you. When all these things start happening, remember I've told you this is, this is going to happen. Uh, they will make you outcast. Now listen to this, but this is verse 2 of John 16. Uh, but an hour is coming for everyone who cues you will think that he is offering service to God. People are going to kill you and they think in doing so they're serving God. You know of any example of that? Apostle Paul, right? He's like, what do you say? I've, I've been, been in all good conscience up to this day. And that was that long after he'd become a Christian. He'd persecuted Christians and held the coats of those that stoned Stephen and all that kind of thing. So we know there, there were those who thought they were serving the Lord when they were persecuting Christians. Uh, lots of passages will, will tell us those things. Verses 5, 6, and 7. But now I'm going to him who sent me, uh, uh, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things you, you, you're, to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Here we go, Sam. Verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him. And what's the helper going to do in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11? Going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So how does the Holy Spirit convict the world concerning sin? He led the... Through the gospel, he led the apostles to all truth, all things I've commanded you. And what was the virtually Jesus' last words were, uh, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. So they preached the gospel, and they knew the gospel because the Holy Spirit led them to remember all of that, right? And so it's through that that the world is convicted. Verses 13 and 14, he talks again about the uh, Spirit coming. He will, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. Verse 16, I think uh, this is some of what Kerry was talking about a few minutes ago. In a little while, you will no longer see me. He's going to be crucified, buried in a tomb, right? And again, in a little while, you will see me. So he's going to be resurrected, and he's going to go with them back up into Galilee, right? Uh, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will, will uh, let's see, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, rejoice that they've killed Jesus. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So at first, when this happens, you're going to be sad about it. You're going to be grieved. But that grief will be turned into joy. Verse 22, therefore, you, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no, no one will take that joy away from you. Verse 33, again, he says, uh, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. So he talks about the peace once again, and he, he ends that with, he says, I have overcome the world. 
So uh, in overcoming the world, he did that through the shedding of his innocent blood, right? That's, that's the only way it could ever be done. And no one else can do it but Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 4 and verse 15 suffered in every way that we do, just like every other human being does, temptations and everything, but without sin. So he had overcome the world. John chapter 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. Verse 1 talks about him lifting up his eyes to heaven. Uh, he says in verse 2, even as you have given him authority himself over all flesh and to all whom you have given him, he may have uh, he may give eternal life. So he says, all that you have given me, Father, that I may give to them eternal life. Now, a lot can be said about that, but uh, we, we know that, again, that was through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, what is 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, you're called through the gospel. Uh, Romans 1 and verse 16, the gospel is God's power to save. And so Jesus paid the price, and then the gospel is preached in uh, Romans 1 and verse 16, gospel is God's power to save to all who believe. So those that humbly submit to the gospel then would have eternal life. Verse 5, now Father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus existed before the world. Uh, verse 8, for the words which you gave me I have given to them. Verse 14, I have given them your word. Verse 26, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Verse 23, I in them and, and you in me and they, that they may be perfected in unity. So how can we all be perfected in unity? all through obedience of the truth, right? If we start putting man's uh, thoughts and teachings in there, then we're going to be divided. The only way we can be united is united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. What he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father uh, but by me. That's going through that pretty pretty quickly there. but uh, Then Jesus came uh, with them to a place called Gethsemane. So he's already out on the Mount of Olives. Now he's going over to, to the Garden of, of Gethsemane. Uh, John just calls it it's just a garden. But Matthew and Mark both give us the name of that garden. Who, uh, lesson number eight here. We're just going to barely get started in it. So Jesus prays in the garden. You have to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke to get all of the, the picture here. So they go into the garden. He's with the 11 where Judas is gone. And so he leaves eight of them and takes uh, Peter, Andrew, and James with him a stone's throw away, uh, Luke says, and says, now you wait here. And then he goes a little bit further and he prays. It says that Jesus was grieved and distressed. This is Matthew chapter 26, beginning verse 36. Um, Mark says a similar thing, distressed and troubled. And he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. 
Mark says it makes a similar statement there. Deeply grieved. That's, that's some serious grief. I don't think all of us has felt some grief, but have we ever been grieved to the point of death? It's hard to imagine that kind of grief. But he goes a little way from them and he prays and he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. It says in Luke 22 and verse 44, it says, In being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Agony. I, I can remember one time after an accident, all my ribs were broken on this side. They had a collapsed lung. And every four hours, they would bring this vibrator thing around and put on those broken ribs and vibrate those ribs trying to inflate the lung. That was unpleasant. <laughs> and... And every four hours, so you could look at the clock and you would know when it was about to happen again. And you just dreaded that like, but that wasn't, just imagine what, G, that was nothing. That was nothing compared to what Jesus was saying. It made me think about, you remember what the new commandment was? That you love as I have loved you. Jonathan said it's, the magnitude of the love. The magnitude. And I think this passage kind of gives us at least a little bit of inkling of the magnitude of his love for us. He's suffering in agony. Can you imagine so stressed that you're sweating like it's blood dripping to the ground? And he, he could have avoided that. He, he's at night. You know, he could go hide somewhere, he, a, but, but he continued. So three times he would come back to the apostles and they would be sleeping and he'd wake them up. He'd go back and pray again. Three times that, that happened. And finally, this is Matthew 26 and verse 46. He says, get up and let's, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So uh, after this prayer, he says, come on, let's go. And he actually goes to meet those, be Judas and a large crowd that's coming with clubs and, and swords and lanterns and so forth. And again, all he had to do was, he knew exactly where they were coming. All he had to do was just go another direction. Or if he just hadn't come to the garden at all that night, he could have avoided it. But it was the right time and he was gonna do the Father's will. Matthew 26, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came and accompanied by a large crowd. Uh, John says that uh, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came with lanterns and torches and, and weapons. So you can imagine this, Jesus with his apostles here now. And here comes, we don't know how many it was, he calls it a large crowd. And they're armed with swords and clubs. And uh, they're not coming uh, with good intentions on their mind, are they? So that's the circumstance here. And uh, so it's, there's a little uh, disagreement. I, I'm going to read first what John says about it, and then we'll look back. We've only got about one minute here. John chapter 18, beginning with verse 4. 
So Jesus, knowing all these things were coming upon him, so Jesus knew every bit of it, could have avoided it, but he's going to do the Father's will. And went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? So you see this group coming, this large crowd coming with clubs and spears and everything. Who do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there with them. So he said to them, uh, I, I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. I, I don't know if it just kind of startled them. Maybe they expected Jesus and his disciples to fight. And when all of a sudden there he was in front of them like that and saying, I'm he, I, maybe it scared them. But for some reason they fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, who do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I'm, I'm telling you that uh, I am he, uh, the one that you seek, so let these go. So you've... I'm the one you're looking for. You let, let these others go. And he said that was to fulfill the word he had spoken before back in John 17, verse 12, that he didn't lose any of them. And so that's the scene. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that it was uh, Judas then come up. And remember, this is, it, it, it's in the dark, it's in the night. And though they had lanterns, I mean, that light can only go so far. It might be difficult to see. So, how, so even though this person is saying, I'm Jesus, how do they know for sure? Could be somebody trying to trick them, right? So how do they know for sure? How would they know for sure that Judas, Judas had, had already told them, the one that I give the kiss, that's going to be the one you're looking for. And so that's what he does. And Matthew says that... Uh, now, he who was betraying him came, this is Matthew 26, 48, uh, gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. Immediately, Jesus went uh, to Jesus and said, hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. We'll have to close out right there for this. We'll, we'll pick up there uh, in the garden that they have seized Jesus and they're going to take him to the high priest. And of course, we'll see her that uh, uh, Peter pulls a sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant and those kind of things before they take him for a so-called trial. Thank you. Appreciate all the good, good comments this morning.